Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we are going into one of the most important weeks for Georgia politics uh, since the 2020 presidential election, uh, then since the runoff in 2021. Uh, We now have a general election upon us, the final day of voting tomorrow. Already 2.5 million Georgians have cast ballots in early voting, and uh, we'll see how many turn out at the polls uh, tomorrow. But there's no question that the consequences of this election are massive. On top of that, uh, we had the startling news on Friday that David Ralston, longtime Speaker of the Georgia House and always considered, I think, a cooling saucer in uh, the process of governing down at a very hot at times legislature, uh, is stepping down as Speaker Um, he says, for health reasons. That, in many ways, is just as consequential for the year ahead as what happens in the election uh, as it comes to an end tomorrow. And we're going to talk about all that on today's show with our panel. Before we introduce them, uh, one other quick note. Um, Because things are going to be moving rapidly over the next couple of days, once uh, the final day of voting starts tomorrow morning, we're going to be presenting two live Political Rewind shows on Tuesday and Wednesday. We'll be with you live again at 2 tomorrow. We're already live, as you all know, at 9 in the morning um, because we want to keep track of what's happening at polling places across the state, how the turnout looks. Um, so so we, we'll be live at 9 and 2 tomorrow. And then on Wednesday, we'll also do a 2 o'clock live show because we imagine there are races that will still be undecided And we'll want to be as uh, up-to-date as we can and give you the most accurate and up-to-date information about how the vote is being counted across the state. All right. All that said, let's get right to the panel. Patricia Murphy, political reporter and columnist. She writes the Political Insider column for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and oversees the jolt, the best daily summary of what's happening in politics in Georgia that I know of. Patricia... This is it. You've been working every day and uh, will continue to in the days ahead, I suspect. This is it, Bill. <laughs> this is it, or is it? That's the question. We'll oh, see. That is the question. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is it. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about the prospects for a runoff in the Senate race and perhaps in other races as well. Um, we have uh, Amy Steigerwald. Back with us, political science professor at Georgia State University. How are you, Amy? Doing well. And I like to vote on Election Day, so I'm super excited to go tomorrow. And I like to stand in line and see everybody there. And I'm going to take my son. And so I'm, I'm super excited. I, yeah, you know, I understand that. I, I used to do that, too. This time, my wife and I decided to vote on the very first day of early voting. And we faced a pretty long line on, on that <laughs> day, surprisingly. Uh, Kendra King-Moman is with us. She is a political science professor um, at uh, Oglethorpe 
University. And Kendra, I think you joined, started joining our panels at just the right time. You've been with us as this election cycle has really heated up, and we're, we're very glad you're back with us today. Glad to be back today from Dallas. And um, listen, I'm excited. Like Amy, I'm going to go tomorrow with my husband and son. And I'm telling everyone I know, go and vote. Uh, This is a close race and there's a lot at stake. Um, I leave for last, but certainly not least, the man I consider the dean of political science professors in the state of uh, Georgia, Charles Bullock. Chuck Bullock has been teaching political science at the University of Georgia since the 60s, and he doesn't look a day over, what, 45, Chuck? <laughs> I'll take that gladly, yes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Chuck, let me ask you a quick question. We, Because of your, your history, you know that it's become almost a cliche for uh, those of us who comment on politics to say one of the most consequential elections of our lifetime. How does this election, in your mind, rank among those? I think it is, and not so much so because of the tenor of the characters who are running in this state, but we have so many election deniers who are running in other states, and I think that's what makes it so significant, that they could take over you know, the positions of Secretary of State, Governor, those positions would certify elections going forward. So I think that puts a different kind of light on what we're looking at this year as opposed to what we've seen in the past. That makes perfect sense to me. Um, all right, let's move on and start looking at uh, where the candidates, what the candidates have been doing over the last couple of days as the uh, race comes to an end. Patricia, for, I guess the first question for you is where, where did you uh, go this weekend? Who were you covering and what did you see? So this weekend I was actually in, um, uh, in my house writing columns. Right. I wrote a column for tomorrow. <laughs> I wrote uh, the jolt for Saturday. We did a special edition of the podcast about David Ralston. So, um, and I had some prep work to do before election day because once news breaks on election day, it's too late to do anything. So that's what I was doing. But we had everybody else all around the state um, catching up with the candidates. And of course, you were uh, getting that information fed in uh, to you, and we were all reading it online as uh, Saturday and Sunday unfolded. Um, we, it, I, I was interested in the fact that Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock on Saturday, in some ways, went back to their homes, their, to, to the places that made them who they are. We know that Raphael Warnock was down in Savannah. He had Spike Lee with him, uh, both of them Morehouse graduates. Um, and, of course, he's talked a lot, both in his first campaign and in this one, about the humble roots he came out of in Savannah. Um, meanwhile, there's Herschel Walker on Saturday holding a rally in Athens before the, one of the biggest University of Georgia football games ever. Um, and so he was back in, his, in the place that made him uh, uh, famous, too. I thought that was just interesting juxtapositioning, Patricia. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it's, um, you know, it's great campaign work on both of their team's parts. You really want to go from alpha to omega and then back again through the course of your um, uh, of your campaign, introducing voters and uh, introducing yourself to voters, telling them where you're from, uh, why you're doing what you're doing, and then coming back to where it all started and saying and nothing's changed about that. And so 
for Warnock, um, yeah, he has been back to Savannah many times. He grew up in public housing in Savannah. The arc of his journey is just really startling to think about. Um, but for Herschel Walker, too, I have been to his hometown of Wrightsville, um, tiny, tiny town. Um, he faced a lot of racism growing up, uh, went to the University of Georgia and just managed to change his life completely. Um, and is when you go to Athens, you understand why Herschel Walker is in this race tied with Raphael Warnock, um, because he is so thoroughly beloved by a segment of Georgians who will never forget the way they made them feel when he was 19 years old running on the football field. Kendra, um, uh, Warnock in these uh, last days, maybe last week or so of this race, on the stump has been changing his message a bit. We have seen from his campaign and from the PACs supporting his candidacy uh, for quite a long time now, uh, very harsh attacks on Herschel Walker based on his uh, past abuse of women, his lying about aspects of his life. But Warnock himself on the campaign trail has uh, has been has had a much more positive and mild approach to the campaigning. But uh, it was interesting. Here's a quote from him this weekend. He said, "I don't take any pleasure in talking about these things, talking about Walker's treatment of women in his life." I'm a pastor, and I have sat in my office with women who have been victimized by domestic violence, and I can't ignore this. Not only is he not ready, he's not fit, and the people of Georgia deserve better. There are some people who think that Warnock maybe should have started uh, being a little bit more uh, critical in that way earlier in the campaign, but, but certainly it's a change that tells us that he knows he's in a tough fight. Absolutely. I think at the end of the day, part of the approach that both candidates have taken, uh, which has been harsh on women. I mean, we've talked about women almost as a third party entity that that doesn't have a stake in this election. And I think it's a it's a little too late. But I applaud the turn to say, listen, I don't take pleasure in this. I don't um, revel in the fact that women have been abused. And I think ultimately this race is so tough because you have these two men, um, one of whom some are saying is unfit to represent represent um, our great state. But at the same time, if you took away the titles of these two men, uh, these two African-American men could be and probably have been profiled. So there's a lot at stake that I think has been lost over the course of this election journey. And Raphael Warnock, he has to appeal to women. He has to appeal to these independent voters right now because, again, women have come out and early voted better and larger than any other cadre. Chuck? Yeah, um I'm not surprised that uh, Warnock has waited until the very end of the campaign to have to do this. And I, I think he's probably quite right in saying he doesn't want to do it, because usually what we see happening is the attack ads are paid for by a political action committee. So there's a bit of distance mm-hmm. then between what the candidate is saying and what is being said on his behalf. Now, granted, most voters, if they see those ads, they don't sort through you know, who's sponsoring this. But the candidate usually likes to extent possible, have a positive message. This is why you should vote for me. And then let the uh, subordinates who are representing him say, and this is why you shouldn't vote for the other guy, because he's bad. But here, Warnock is having to try to walk both of these steps. And we've seen he's put, still putting out very positive ads, uh, as well as now these critical ads and statements attacking uh, his opponent. Amy, uh, to, to contrast that, um, Herschel Walker has been brutally... Uh, uh, harsh in terms of his criticisms of Warnock for some time now. He's a socialist. 
calling him uh, unfit himself for obviously uh, tying him to Joe Biden, President Biden. Um, it, it's been it, he has not held back. And I'm not even looking at some of the, the harsher things he's he's said. But there's no question that Walker has approached his campaign. I think like the football player he used to be, he goes out and charges Yes. And I think one of the things, I mean, and it somewhat alludes to, which I know you want to discuss later, Patricia's column the other day, but the type of rhetoric that we utilize, um, there was a study that was done a couple years ago that I found particularly compelling that showed that really people have started changing how they discuss politics and also how they describe sort of their attachment to party identification. And it used to be that, yes, people had an attachment to it, but they sort of saw politics in many ways as uh, this area of negotiation. And instead, now people refer to it, much like Herschel Walker is doing, as sort of loyalty to a sports team. And the problem is that when you go on to the gridiron, there is no tie. You either win or you lose. You are battling and there is a winner and there is a loser. There is no compromise. There is no tie. And if politics is described in that same language, then it becomes very difficult to really even say something nice about your colleague or right those across the aisle. And it also becomes really difficult to negotiate about policy because if it's put in terms of winning and losing, then it means that you're conflict, you can't compromise. And so I think we really are seeing that in and we're seeing sort of maybe those differences as we see the shift in how the political train is being discussed. Now, when you're running against an incumbent, you have to make the incumbent the issue. By definition, if you're holding office at some point in the past, you got most of the votes. So a challenger has to come up with reasons for why some people need to rethink that earlier decision. And so the challenger is going to come out with all kinds of critical information about the incumbent and say, hey, look, voter, now that I'm giving you this new information, rethink it, change your mind, vote for me, vote for the challenger. And so that's you know, the, the role book that uh, playbook that Walker is working off of. And that's what challengers do. Yeah. Um, Kendra, I, I have a, an odd question, I suppose. And, and Patricia, I'd like to hear you weigh in at it as well. Um, although, although there was a, a piece in the AJC over the weekend that raised this question too, the University of Georgia, uh, their their win over Tennessee was commanding, was to some people unexpected. They actually um, had been ranked third by the committee that picks the teams that are going to play in the college football uh, playoffs, with Tennessee being picked as number one. And of course, Georgia just wiped the field with Tennessee. And, and as some people ask the question of whether or not that accrues to the benefit of Herschel Walker in the final days of this race. I'm, I'm just curious, do you see that there that creates a momentum for him? Listen, it's a sad day in politics if a win from Georgia, whom I love. Um, Chuck and I were colleagues for a brief period of time, but it's a sad day in Georgia if a football game uh, lends to votes, but we know it will. Um, we absolutely know it will. And so I think it's just a peculiar time uh, in our state when all of these things are happening. And to Chuck's point, I get it that the challenger beats up the opponent to say, hey, this is what we've had. So this is why you should vote for me. I think the problem with this particular election um, is the dogmatism of a language that is used and the lies 
that have been attached to the challenger position, this brute, this bruteness, uh, then attached to Christianity in some way, um, where you have a candidate saying, I'm a warrior of Christ, so I'm going to punch you in the face. You know, uh, let's get this C team out of there. This is it's crazy times. And I think people have to discern the times in order to know how to vote based upon their political ideology and preferences. Patricia? Yeah, so I think what's more likely to have an effect on people's decision here, um, more so than the football game, because we all know Herschel Walker was a football player, and anybody who cares about that is already voting for him. Um, I think his debate performance is very important. I also think control of the Senate is ultimately important. We have lots of polling at the AJC when we ask likely voters about their kind of their opinions, their personal opinions of Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. And Raphael Warnock was outpacing Herschel Walker by 10 points on honesty, by t- almost 20 points, ready for the job, capable of the job. Yet they are still tied, and Herschel Walker even is leading in some polls by a small margin. Um, uh, and a lot of that has to do with control of the Senate. Our voters looking at Washington and saying, I want more of the same from Joe Biden, or I want to put the brakes on this situation. And that's what Herschel Walker represents to them. And so there are people for whom knowing Herschel Walker, loving Herschel Walker from 40 years ago is has created this um, almost tough one coding around him that you can't tell them anything that he's done in his personal life that matters to them. But I think of paramount importance at the mm-hmm. end of the day is that is control of the U.S. Senate as well. Absolutely. Chuck, I, I, Kendra said something that I want to talk about briefly, but also carefully, because religion is always a difficult topic to discuss. But what about the fact that Walker does open just about every uh, event that he holds, making the comment that I want to start by thanking my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says he's a warrior uh, for Jesus. Um, give me your thoughts on what, how you think that plays in politics these days, and what the implications of it are. You know, white evangelicals are the core constituency for the Republican Party, and I, by that I mean the most loyal Republicans. And so they will usually vote 85, even 90 percent for Republicans. Uh, Donald Trump got uh, 92, 93 percent of that group's vote in 2016. Now, the polling that I've seen, I haven't seen much uh, which has you know, made this linkage, but what I have seen is that uh, uh, Brian Kemp, yeah, he's getting in the upper 80s in terms of the share of the vote from white evangelicals, while Herschel is running about 10 points or so lower than that among white evangelicals. So what, in part, that message is doing uh, is to try to fire up that critical element within the electorate. Because these are the kinds of folks who one would expect to vote for any Republican up and down the ballot. And yet uh, about 10 percent or so of these white evangelicals are having a hard time, probably because of some of the information that's been released about Walker's uh, treatment of, of women and his position, whatever it may be, on, on abortion, his position versus his actions. And so he's trying to get those folks back into his bigger tent. We, we don't necessarily, Amy, have any reason to doubt the sincerity of uh, Herschel Walker's devotion to the Lord, I guess. It's not our, our place to do that. But, but Chuck does make a good point that it is also politically effective for certain voters. 
certainly. At the end of the day, and I recognize that everybody gets annoyed by political scientists saying this, it matters who actually turns out to vote. And white evangelicals are a committed part of the Republican base, and they also vote. And so getting them to both turn out to vote and vote for you is a terrifically important thing. And um, Walker has made right the calculation that the best thing he can do is really uh, spur turnout from that base rather than, for example, trying to maybe um, broaden who he is trying to attach. Right, He is going into sort of very deep conservative areas and really trying to push up the numbers there. We haven't seen him uh, necessarily sort of going into less uh, friendly territory to try to spur up that, which means that he really needs to do that. And he needs to make sure that his message is going to overcome whatever concerns, right, sort of as Chuck was noting, that group may have and get them to the polls and get them to check his name and not, for example, leave it blank or vote for someone else. Kendra, your take on that? I totally agree. Let me be clear. By no means am I trying to question Herschel Walker's faith. Um, I'm a woman of faith myself, so I want to state that. Um, but I, but I, I think that uh, Amy is right. We understand that this is going to be about turnout. It's going to be about shoring up your guaranteed bases. And Herschel Walker has some guaranteed bases. I think even you know the last couple of um, campaign um, talks that have been in front of um, of gun shops, right? It's shoring up the base. Um, and, and again, I think what's at stake, Patricia said this so well, some people are bypassing what might be the micro level issues with Herschel Walker to look at the macro issue that's at stake, which is control of the U.S. Senate. And six years is a very long time. No one is talking about that in terms of what this election is going to do uh, for the state of Georgia. So if you're looking at these last two years of of Warnock and where the economy is right now, there's a fear of failure of some that if I'm struggling right now to pay at the pump, what will six months from now look like? What will another three years look like? So that gives Herschel Walker, in my opinion, a competitive advantage right now. Um. Thank you for that, uh, all of that. I, I think when the election is over, I'd really like to do a show at some point talking about the uh, role that um, Republicans particularly have uh, made religion and their devotion to particularly Christianity and the evangelical base. But we'll, we'll leave that for another time. I do think it's something that we need to keep an eye on because it's, uh, I think, an important element of uh, who we are in times when there's so much divisiveness and and bigotry, uh, for that matter. But let's leave it for now. Uh, Before we take a break, uh, Patricia, um, what do we expect the last day between uh, Walker and uh, Warnock in terms of how they're going to close out their campaigns? Yeah, so um, Rafa Warnock is in Macon and Columbus today, uh, going into those urban areas that are very important in a close election as well. Um, Herschel Walker is going to be in uh, the Atlanta suburbs. Uh, He will have also a big campaign rally tonight in Kennesaw at the Governor's Gun Club, which is a favorite of uh, Donald Trump Jr. He's had events there before. Um, of interest is that Governor Brian Kemp is holding a separate election eve rally with the entire Democratic, uh, excuse me, Republican ticket, except <laughs> for Herschel Walker. They're doing separate events. And um, 
uh, Governor Kemp has said he would have been open to have Herschel Walker join him on the trail this weekend. And I think it's of importance and of note, at least, that uh, Herschel Walker's charting his own course. They're running very, very different campaigns. I have a um, column about that in the AJC this morning. Um, and before we close, I had one quick point on evangelical support. Um, I've talked to a number of black evangelicals who feel very, very differently about Herschel Walker. And I think mm -hmm. in our conversation, it's important to delineate between uh, white evangelicals mm -hmm. and black evangelicals who speak in deeply religious terms and are supporting mm -hmm. Raphael Warnock instead. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank mm -hmm. you for yeah. uh, not letting that go unsaid. By the way, Patricia, your colleague, uh, Bluestein, Greg Bluestein, uh, just tweeted that Kemp at an event said Walker is, quote, definitely a part of the team despite his, he didn't say despite his absence, that, that's absence, that's Greg's part of the line. Um, but Kemp noted that the GOP Senate hopeful was targeting voters in North Georgia while Kemp was crisscrossing the southern part of the state. We have to finish uh, the drill, as Coach uh, Rick would say, said uh, uh, Governor Kemp. Um, but Patricia, before I take a break, talk for a moment about exactly what your column was about the very different campaigns that these two Republicans at the top of their ticket are running. How do you compare what Kemp is doing to what Walker is doing? Well, I think they represent the two really different uh, kinds of Republicans in Georgia and in the country right now. Brian Kemp, um, if you go to an event, it is I said it's like going back in a time machine. It's like Donald Trump never happened. He never talks about Donald Trump, never talks about the last election. Um, his, his surrogates are Chris Christie and Vice President Mike Pence, who also doesn't talk about Donald Trump. And, and it's very, very focused on Chamber of Commerce issues, the economy, tax cuts. It's just a very traditional Republican message. And you can go two miles down the street to a Herschel Walker event, and it is, again, that that warrior of God. He has Trump surrogates with him. It's very much based on social issues and warnings about transgender kids playing youth sports. Um, it's just a totally different energy and vibe. Um, they're going after the exact same GOP voters, but Brian Kemp already has those voters largely locked up. And uh, Herschel Walker, as uh, um uh, as we just heard, needs to do work with his GOP base still to get them all out to the polls and help him win this thing. Okay, we got to get to a break. Before we do, I want to do a round, and I'd really appreciate just a very brief one-sentence answer, starting with you, Amy Steigerwald. Senate runoff, yes or no? Yes. Okay. Kedra? Si. Yes. <laughs> Chuck Bullock. I hope so, since I'm finishing up a book on Ross. <laughs> <laughs> Patri Patricia Murphy, does it appear anybody can get over 50%? Well, selfishly, I hope not, because I'd like to celebrate Thanksgiving with my family. Um, but my answer is I don't know. I really don't know. I think uh, Governor Brian Kemp's performance um, how he does could also affect how Herschel Walker does. And so I just don't know. That's my honest answer. All right. Um, thank you for those answers. We're going to take a break right now and be back with more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. 
It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back with Amy Staggerwalt, Patricia Murphy, Kendra King-Moman, and Professor Charles Bullock. Um, thank you all for uh, being with us for uh, the show today. Um, uh, Kendra, let me start with you on this. I, the, um, the governor's race, we, for a time now, um, we've seen the polling, which shows Brian Kemp leading by a fairly significant margin over Stacey Abrams. The Abrams campaign insists that uh, their get-out-the-vote effort will more than make up the gap that the polls show. They say that the polls have misrepresent have, have really um, not had uh, uh, the best possible uh, models for uh, coming to the results they do. They've oversampled conservatives, according to uh, the Abrams campaign. Um, so they're walk, but they're going into this race, uh, I think, with voters feeling that they've got some catching up to do. How does that impact what happens in this final day of voting tomorrow, do you imagine? Yeah, I imagine it's going to be a tough fight for the Abrams campaign. Um, I know the rally that she did on Saturday with some heavy hitter, you know, celebrities and political figures and some unionized um, labor um, representatives speaking, um, that galvanized. But I don't think the attendance was uh, was nearly as um, heavy and attended as they had hoped for. And so I, I think for me, what I'm looking at, and I'm, I've been looking at the polling numbers, what are um, younger voters going to do? They're still lagging behind. Uh, if you if you look at the poll, I can't recall which one it was that came out a few days ago, you had those um, 55 and above voting at four times the rate of those 18 to 29 in our state in terms of turnout and early voting. And so, again, I, I think that this is going to be a hard call. But what I admire about the Abrams campaign is that they're not giving up the fight. I think the way in which they're talking about the overpolling and the oversampling is a way to infuse hope to get people to come out. The only way they're going to close this gap tomorrow is if you have their base, African-American voters, which she's closed that gap by 10 percent, if they come out, if young people come out, um, and, and if independents um, who are torn still come out. But other than that, uh, this is going to be a tight race, um, and I think we, we kind of know where it's going. Amy? Um, I think Kendra is exactly right and hit on a lot of the high points. Um, and I do think um, – so I actually have a slightly different take on the sort of numbers that we're seeing so far on, on early voting because a lot of the comparisons are being done between – um, 2022 to 2018. And I would actually argue that what we instead need to be looking at is we need to do it in comparison to 2020. Um, because yes, I'm that dork. So I looked at 2016 to 2018 and the fall off was about 15% uh, in the in-person voting and only about 6% when it came to the mail-in ballots. If we look, though, from 2020 to 2022, again, the in-person falloff is about 85%, but the mail-in ballot falloff is 82%. It is an enormous gap that we're seeing and, like, that lack of turnout. And so the question is, is are those voters, right, who have possibly been brought in, are they going to show up on Election Day? 
Are they still sending their ballots in? What is happening there? And so that's sort of one point. The other point is, and I think we, um, now granted, I did write a book on this, so I might have a bit of a, a focus on it, but I think we may not have given enough credence to the reality that Abrams is also running as the first female gubernatorial candidate, and not only as the first female candidate, but the first female candidate of color. And studies continually show, particularly for executive positions, that there are quite a lot of people who are simply not quite ready to support a woman in that position. Um, and I think that, you know, there's been a lot of sort of focus on sort of black men and their sort of relatively weaker support. And some of that, again, really does tie into that. And so it's, it's a hard one to sort of separate it out. But there's a lot of people where at the end of the day, they're still not sure that they're entirely comfortable with that. And I think it does bring up a lot of um, important issues that are also tied up within um, kind of the, the racial and gender dynamics, not only more broadly, but particularly also in the black community. Chuck, I don't doubt for a minute that Stacey Abrams and her people want very much to win this governor's race. But there were folks who were taken aback when a week ago they they scaled back their TV buy, their media buy dramatically um, at a time when Raphael Warnock was investing something like $5.9 million into a week's worth of TV ads. Uh, the Abrams campaign were down, I believe the figure was under a million dollars. And then yesterday, she did have that rally on Saturday that, that as Kendra said, was you know, may not have been as well attended as they would have hoped. But then yesterday she had a very low-key day. On the final Sunday of the campaign, I'm reading in the AJC that she went to a Kroger to talk to voters and everything. Give me a sense of what you think about what that tells us at this point. Yeah, I think Kendra's right. If you look at the situation, it's just a pretty bleak for, for Stacey Abrams. Uh to be saved, I think what she has to have is a dramatic ground game, something that's going to get people to come to the polls who don't usually do so. And that's what she has said all along is that's her target, are people who are not regular voters. So she could argue, on the one hand, these people are not being picked up in the polls because all the polls focus on likely voters. And by definition, she's trying to get unlikely voters to show up and vote. Uh, so if she is investing in a ground game, doing the door knocking, getting people to go and vote, that makes sense, especially mm -hmm. looking at the poor turnout among very young voters. Because we know young voters, they don't watch television. The advertising dollar is wasted on them. So she may be doing something else, realizing the people she has to get to show up are folks who she would not reach with television, maybe knocking on their door, having someone come and talk to them might just do it. But that's got to be your hope. And it's a long shot. Patricia? Yeah, well, I think that's such a good point. When the Abrams campaign talks about the unlikely voters that they are reaching out to, they're especially thinking about uh, women and young people uh, who have been activated, in their words, by the Dobbs decision, the issue of abortion. So they focused on abortion a lot in the last um, several months of the campaign. Um, but the same polls that show Abrams lagging also show Raphael Warnock um, doing okay and tied with Herschel Walker. And so we, 
there there is a bad news, good news scenario in those polls for Democrats that is hard to explain with the unlikely voter um, conversation. Um, but again, I don't I never want to act like the polls are predictive um, or that that represents what is going to happen. Andre Dickens was at about 14 percent a few weeks before he became the mayor of Atlanta. So we never want to say that, not, that you know, that, that uh, surprises can't happen because they can and do. And I think 2020 is a good example of that as well. Um, but I do want to say that um, in terms of Stacey Abrams, she's just such an unusual candidate. And I think because Georgia voters have seen her before, know her well from her time here in the state, it's easy to dismiss. Um, the dynamics that she has running as a, not just as a black woman, but also as a black women, woman without a family to surround herself by without kids, um, to be out on the campaign trail with her and doing things that are relatable to uh, Georgians and voters who are used to seeing somebody like Brian Kemp with his three daughters and the first lady. Um, it creates sort of a very familiar tableau when people see that and they think, oh, I can relate to this person. I think it is a, a very high bar for Stacey Abrams that she has to climb with voters to say, I understand exactly who you are because we are we are so similar. You know, she's a Yale educated, brilliant woman um, who has really made history in so many ways. Um, but I do think that's a challenge for her um, in that she is so unique. It also makes her uh, different from Georgians who are used to having candidates say, look, look, we're just alike. We're the same person. You know, she doesn't, she can't have that conversation with voters. And I think it, um, it does make it harder for voters to relate to her in that way. Kendra, the Wall Street Journal's uh, latest poll uh, had interesting data on women, sub white suburban women. Now, this is a national poll. This is not Georgia. And, and I want to be clear about that. But they showed a really dramatic swing among those voters from the Democratic column to the Republican column as they were heading out to the polls to vote. It was based, uh, the crosstab show, on uh, inflationary concerns, cost of grocery, gasoline, and the like. Now, in, 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 and of course, this is a constituency that, that the Abrams campaign really needs to, to win. And Georgia may be different because we don't know how white suburban women may be reacting to Herschel Walker's treatment of women over the years. Nevertheless, it is interesting if uh, that group of voters, we spend so much time talking about black voters, maybe we should think about what's happening with white suburban uh, women. Absolutely. I think white suburban women are in an interesting dichotomy of thought. Um, while they may be um, somewhat left-leaning or liberal in some of their ideology, ultimately, I think their traditionalism um, in terms of them being in families or even if they are um, women who are divorced, they're raising children in, in some cases. And so the economy matters. Um, I, I think the other part of this is, you know, we haven't talked about this in quite some time, but but when you go back to 2020 and you go back to this notion, and even as far back as 2018 and this black girl magic, which hurt Keisha Lance Bottoms a little bit because it, it seemed like a, a uh, difference of opinion in terms of the electoral base. Stacey Abrams, I don't think, has moved away from that. And to, to, to talk about something that Patricia said, yes, she is a brilliant woman. She is the epitome of black excellence, um, as we know it within African-American culture. However, I think we're still dealing with a state and a society where black excellence can still become too much too strong or too, too much in terms of do I really want this type of other 
and leadership. And that is, I believe, what has harmed Stacey Abrams, because people forget that she was a, sense, uh, a consensus builder uh, when she was in the House, right? She, she had a, a lot of positive legislation behind her, but in her bid for governor, um, she, she has literally come up against things that no other candidate has come up against. And to Amy's point, we have lost um, the ability to celebrate that she's been a first in many respects because at the end of the day, she's still labeled as a black woman. And all of the misperceptions that go with that, especially when you look at putting a woman like her without that family surrounding and leadership. Amy, last word before a break. Um, Kendra and Patricia, I think both sort of hit the nail on the head that there, there is unfortunately this reality. And again, this is backed up by numerous studies that um, many of these things that women in many ways have to have check more of the boxes, number one, before you even get them to run, and then sometimes get criticized for that and have these issues where in many ways they're sort of uh, darned if they do, darned if they don't, right? The woman who is on the campaign trail with her children is also then asked, who's taking care of your children while you're doing this? How could you be out here, right? If you don't have children and you instead sort of put that on hold to focus on that, then you lack that ability to be seen like someone else and to um, show that you're humanized and go from there. And so it becomes very difficult to traverse all that. Chuck, I want to get your thoughts on this before I have to get to a break. Real briefly, uh, just looking at the share of the white vote that looks like it's going for uh, for Stacey Abrams. Uh, as we talked about here before, she needs to get around 29, 30% of the white vote. Polling suggests she's down around 23, 24%. Uh, so she's yeah. got a lot of ground she has to make up there. All right, um, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show. And when we come back, let's talk about what the impact of this announcement from David Ralston could be in the months, um, and for that matter, years ahead at the Georgia legislature. We'll be right back. Patricia Murphy, I think we were all caught off guard when the announcement came on Friday that David Ralston, Speaker of the House uh, for the past 12 years, was stepping down from that position due to health concerns, first of course, Um, We wish him nothing but the best in dealing with uh, his health issues. But uh, he also leaves an enormous vacuum in terms of his leadership in that body. I know there are people listening who don't like some of the things over which David uh, Ralston has presided. They they don't like some of the measures that he as a Republican passed. But I think people who watch the House very closely uh, know that in many ways he has been a moderating Uh, force on many issues that come before that body. Talk about him a bit. Yeah, so um, I started covering uh, the Capitol about two years ago, and one of the first things I noticed was when David Ralston would open the floor every morning, he would pause to recognize special events in people's lives, the members of the House chamber. Um, And for Democrats and Republicans alike, he would say, you know, so-and-so, maybe a Democratic member has lost his mother yesterday. Please keep him in your prayers. And we're all concerned for him and sending him our best. Or he would say, it's so-and-so's birthday today. Let's wish them a happy birthday. And that might be Republican. Um, And he he said, I asked him one time, I said, you you celebrate this almost like it's a family occasion. 
why do you do that? And he said, I really consider the members of the house to be my family. And that's how I want to treat it. I, I want to respect people in this chamber and create an environment where they can respect each other. And that is so unusual in politics these days. And so it will leave, obviously, a huge leadership gap for the Republican Party at a time when there will be a new Senate leader, no matter what happens. And uh, the governor either coming in for a second term or a new governor, we don't know exactly what that looks like. But Ralston has been the real steadying force in the entire building, even including for staff members, custodians, people cleaning the building during COVID. He is just the real center of that universe. And so for him to leave really is going to change the dynamic there very, very much. Chuck, um, we know that Ralston has played a role in trying at times to moderate more uh, uh, far-right wing legislation. Uh, He was never fond of the religious liberty bill. He tried to uh, 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 introduce and pass a modified uh, version of the Pastor Protection Act. Uh, We know that he did not want the um, strict, strict abortion uh, bill that passed. But in, 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 in any number of issues, he's finally had to bow to the wave of very conservative members of his caucus in the House. But he has on occasion been able to hold the line. What do you think is going to happen in terms of a new speaker and whether we're going to see a tilt even further to the right in the Georgia House? You're right. Uh, he has often put uh, the most conservative, most ideological members on a very short leash, uh, has not promoted their careers, uh, has demanded they conform in certain ways. So I know some of the people who I talk to view him as having often been the adult in the room who could tamp down uh, <laughs> more childish passions, perhaps, we might think of. And so without him there, you know, even if we get someone who has cut from the same ideological timber as he is, that person is not going to have the same kind of influence because David Boston has been speaker for a dozen years. A new speaker simply is not going to have that kind of credibility and ability to rein in uh, what might be more extreme views and, and might have to cater to those views actually to be chosen as the new speaker. So it's going to be a very different kind of institution. It's going to be an institution probably in which Democrats are going to feel much less comfortable because while, yes, Democratic legislators would often agree with, disagree with the speaker, they would nonetheless say, he respects me, he gives me a chance to articulate my concerns, uh, he listens. And that's one of the things which makes the Georgia legislature a less hostile place than Congress has become. And so that would be a serious loss if, if we become simply a microcosm of the kinds of hostility that reigns in, in Washington. Um, Mary Margaret Oliver, who I know a lot of you out there listening think of as one of your very favorite panelists on this show, has always a Democrat, has always spoken highly of her ability to work with Ralston to come to some agreements on difficult issues. And of course, she worked with Ralston very closely on passing this sweeping overhaul of the mental health laws in uh, the state. And and now that he's stepping down as, as speaker, it occurs to me, I mean, that it's that bill that became law that in many ways will uh, uh, symbolize uh, some of the best of what he's accomplished as Speaker of the House. Most decidedly. I mean, he really put uh, 
a lot of his efforts behind it, both sort of, you know, due to the personal ties to it as well, policy and, and corralling people to ensure and uh, sort of stopping the, a little bit of the opposition that popped up uh, to that bill. And I think it is going to be notable because not only are we losing Ralston, but there's also going to be massive shifts over on the Senate side as well. Not only will there definitely be a new lieutenant governor, but there's also going to be a new uh, Senate pro tem. Uh, because, of course, Butch Miller had run, and so he did not rerun for his position, and so there will be somebody new running there. And really across all of it, the uh, language that you hear a lot of people talk about at the Capitol is that they're a big family. Um, people come in. They've got 40 days to get everything done. They sort of band together. But that has that possible – like, it's, it's a very easy thing, though, to shift if the sort of position of the leadership shifts that this is more to be, uh, that it's a battle as opposed to a group of people trying to work together. And so it's going to be very interesting in both chambers to see what emerges and how that works out. Kendra? Yeah, I think whomever takes over the leadership helm is going to have to be a great co-parent. Um, unequivocally, absolutely, <laughs> they're going to have to co-parent well. Why? Ralston, was, he was a party loyalist. We, we, we know that, but he was known as a consensus builder. And my concern, and it goes back to the article you wrote, Patricia, on yesterday about, and you said this thing, you said disagreement is healthy, but demonization is a cancer. And my concern is if we go too far um, to, to, to either side of the pendulum, but to too far to the right with the next leader, we're going to see more of this vitriol that Chuck was talking about and our backyard. And in political science, we talk about nimbyism, not in my backyardism, but I think we, we run the risk of things getting really ugly in our state if we don't um, co-parent well in terms of the next leader. Oh, oh my gosh. I, I, yes, thank you. It's a caution that we have to pay attention to. Patricia, we don't have a lot of time, but you wrote a column the other day about, in, in response to the attack on Paul Pelosi, the speaker's husband, um, you talked to uh, people out there, candidates, uh, office holders uh, in Georgia, and the concerns about security are greater than ever. I mean, they're real. This isn't just some distant uh, uh, fantasy. They are really concerned. Yes, it's something you notice uh, covering these candidates. There is a very significant security presence just to protect their lives that did not used to exist. For example, when I used to work in the Senate, I mean, Security was for parking, and that was about it. And now it really is to prevent assassination attempts, to put it crudely. Um, And, you know, I decided to write the column after I talked to Dr. Bullock, and I said, you know, how bad is this? I mean, we've been bad places before, you know, including in the 1960s when Dr. King's own mother was murdered in the sanctuary at Ebenezer. You can't think of anything worse. And Dr. Bullock said, I think this may be, this is a more dangerous time than that. And that really caught my attention and um, makes me, you know, concerned uh, in ways I wasn't even before. Um, We're going to, Chase and Natalie, why don't we put up a link to that column from Patricia, since we didn't have a chance to talk about it in more depth, because it's really an important uh, column. Uh, Patricia Murphy, thank you so much, as always. Uh, for being here. I hope the next couple days uh, go really well for your coverage. Um, Chug, Amy, Kendra, thank you all so much for being here as well. It was terrific to have you on this day before Election Day. I really couldn't ask 
for a better group of people to have talking about politics in Georgia. So Kendra King-Woman, Amy Steigerwald, Chuck Bullock, Patricia Murphy, have a good afternoon, a good evening. I'll be back again with a brand new show, two brand new live shows tomorrow on Political Rewind at 9 and 2. Join us then. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nagy. Take care, stay healthy, and go out and vote if you haven't done it. Get out there tomorrow. Bye, everybody.